you're making positive expectation trades, that the trading that you're doing should lead to uh, to good outcomes, but there's a lot of noise in it, right? There, there are lots of times where you can make the right decision and lose. There's also times where you can make the wrong decision and win, that you can have good outcomes, even though you should not have had the position on that uh, that you had on. The way a, a, a star um, you know, behaves has nothing to do with whether or not we're observing it. But for a trader, the way a stock moves has everything to do with our perception of the way that stock should move. Once we have an opinion about it, we then go out and do something differently and somebody else can see what we did and they're building that into their system and their model of the way the world works. So, so dealing with this constant change, I think is, is the biggest surprise, especially since we're bringing in really high level smart people, right? We're not bringing in people who are used to being wrong and we're putting them in a world where they're going to be wrong a lot. Having the right mindset to say, this I think is correct for now, but it might not be correct tomorrow, is a, is a, a new experience for, for a lot of these people, again, who are accustomed to, to being you know, A-plus students, to, to, to getting things right. And we're putting them in a world where they're not getting a lot right. We are really, really good when somebody else tells us what they're thinking about at seeing where the holes are, right? We're really good at saying, well, gosh, you certainly weren't thinking about this important aspect or, you know, you're, you're you know, in the language of, of biases and heuristics, you're getting anchored or uh, this sounds a lot like hindsight bias or whatever it might be. We're really bad at doing that analysis on ourselves. And one of the students, and, and, and this is the game that I've played most often in casinos, by the way. So I've played most of my real hours putting my capital at risk in this game, which means I've really had a reason to think through how to do this well. And the student said, okay, like I've, I've played uh, a little Hold'em before. Now that you're teaching against this game, I guess it'll probably take a session or two before we're as good as you are. So there's a, ch there's a chance that that's true. You might be right about that, but I don't think that's gonna be the case. I'm pretty sure that I'm gonna keep my edge for a long, long time because there's so much in here that you don't even understand matters. This is the Dunning-Kruger problem, right? Because you know so little about this, you don't even know how much you have to learn about. Welcome to the FMind Podcast, hosted by Mark Randall and Stephen Goldstein, and sponsored by the Society of Technical Analysts, the STA, the world's leading body for the advancement of price action and market timing education. In this episode, we were honoured to sit down and talk to Todd Simpkin, an Associate Director at Susquehanna International Group, SIG, one of the world's most respected trading firms, which is headquartered in Philadelphia. Todd has been a trader himself for Susquehanna and has played an integral role in the development of their superb firm-wide trader development programme. Todd has some fascinating and well-thought-out views about challenges facing traders in relation to behaviour, decision-making and the development of the key skills and abilities needed Needed to thrive in a world characterised by heightened uncertainty. We were captivated by the depth of Todd's wisdom and the clarity with which he shared some relatively complex themes, and we feel you will be too. Before we get into the podcast, long-term listeners to the Alphamine podcast will be aware that we have a very highly valued partnership with the Society of Technical Analysts, who are a globally renowned education institution that has been at the forefront of helping traders, analysts and system developers hone their technical analysis skills for over half a century. Thanks to this collaboration, we are thrilled to extend an exclusive benefit to our listeners who can obtain a 100 British pound discount or its equivalent in your local currency on their superb technical analyst 
home study course. This comprehensive course has an option for an internationally recognised diploma and has been created by some of the leading experts in the fields of technical analysis. The course is designed to profoundly enhance your skills and knowledge and delves into a wide array of price action techniques, methods and aspects. The knowledge can prove invaluable to traders, investors, analysts, quants and system developers, offering fresh perspectives for deciphering and interpreting price action, sentiment, liquidity and many of the aspects around those, including the underlying human behaviour which goes into these aspects. You can visit our website at alpha-mind.net and scroll down to the Society of Technical Analysts section to find a link with more detail how to take advantage of this offer. Now, on with the podcast. Well, a very warm welcome to this week's Alpha Mind podcast. We're delighted to have Todd Simkin with us. Todd, at the start of his career, a Philadelphia Stock Exchange floor trader and a very options-rich market from my own knowledge of that. And through 25 years of experiences over that, most of the time in, in Susquehanna and is now Associate Director of uh, Susquehanna, holding a variety of roles including, and I think this is really important for, for, for the drift of, of the content of the podcast, is responsibility for firm-wide education and trader development of, of the trading teams. So, Todd, welcome to the show, and perhaps starting off in those uh, long-off days of uh, the Philadelphia pits, um, yeah, that must have gave you a real good base to start to uh, you know, drive your career forward from. Um, perhaps tell us a story of, of, of you across that period of time till the present day. Yeah, well, first, uh, thank you guys for, for having me. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. So my time starting on the floor of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange was looked very different than what trading looks like today. And I, I feel like I'm giving a, a history lesson and, and talking about you know the, the, the days when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But it was, it was a, a unique opportunity to to learn trading in a very hands-on way that that you were very much part of the mechanical aspect of the trade so not only were you making the decisions about risk allocation and you know, where you would want to buy or sell uh, these derivative assets but you were also uh, physically writing and circling um, uh, tickets that were then getting stapled together with the with the, the trade on the other side and dropped through a physical slot where uh, where a key puncher would Put the trade into uh, a system, and eventually it would show up on a uh, on an electronic report so that other people could see the trade. But you were at the 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 touch point of of where the the buy met the sell, you know, where the where the two people agreed to um, to this risk transfer for some for some amount of money. And I think that for for me, that's really helped. Now that we're in this electronic environment where trades are instantaneous and and happen at faster than human speed, so uh, you know the the Machines are meeting machines, and and there is no uh, no longer uh, somebody pulling out a stack of tickets and circling September and writing in the the strike price to um, to consummate a trade. But the the underpinnings of the of the agreement to risk exchange for a certain amount of money are the same as they were when I was on the floor of an exchange, when I had to wait for a broker to walk in and represent an order and then shout buy or sell and and, and have the, the trade match up. That's still what's happening today. It's just happening in a different modality. And understanding how we got from the open outcry, very high touch uh, aspect of trading to where we are today with a, a very low touch electronic um, 
uh, anonymous uh, connection between between people, uh, I think has helped uh, in helped us teach our traders that what they're really doing is still agreeing with somebody else that that whether or not it feels like a negotiation, there is sort of an implicit negotiation around pricing that then leads to um, to to a trade, which, like I said, is is this risk transfer, which is um, which is ultimately the service that financial markets provide. Right. We're not just doing this because it's a fun game, although it is a very fun game. We're doing it because ultimately it supports a, a very important function in the capital markets, which is to to allow the the person who can best stomach risk, either because of diversification or because of of the um, uh, offsetting risk that they have in other areas to price it appropriately. And somebody who is who does not want to hold risk to, to be able to sell it um, and and reduce their exposure. So um, that that transition from where I started on the floor to where things are today in electronic markets, I think is very similar to the experience that the markets uh, uh, in general have and, and the way we train people to think about that risk transfer mechanism. And, and do you sense that the, the pressure's changed at all? Is it, do you think it's become easier to make these decisions in this, this the world we're in now? Or do you think it was easier back when you could actually attack in a tactile way, be part of the flow? Yeah, I, lo- I love the idea of, of easiness here because it's not real clear what's easy, right? It is certainly easier to affect a trade right now, right? It is, it, it is not difficult at all for me to Put my hands on a on a keyboard and within seconds have executed a very large uh, quantity uh, trade that doesn't go through as many checks and balances as, as it may have in an open outcry uh, market. So it's very easy for me to trade right now. Um, the the other thing that's easier now is that there's uh, I feel like better access to cleaned data. So so not just not just sources of data. Not only do we have more sources of data now, but we have better processes and better uh, and a better ability to to filter that data to um, to show us what we want to see and filter out all the all the noise that we don't want to see to make a decision. That said, I think that in the open outcry world, there were other things that were a lot easier there. You know, for one thing, because of physical constraints, I could only stand in front of a pit that had say twenty different names traded there, and as much as I might be interested in in other securities that were traded around the corner or in a different pit. I just couldn't be in two places at once. And the only thing I could do was know those 20 names intimately, know know them um, uh, in and out and, and be entirely familiar with the story behind them and know where I wanted to position myself in terms of forward volatility or delta or whatever it might be. Now it's a whole lot harder because I have access to 5,000 names, right? I can I could trade uh, anything from the exact same system uh, that I'm sitting in front of, um, even if I only if I want to concentrate on one name or 5,000, everything looks the same for me in terms of setup and and access. So so some of those things, which I, which I think is uh, incredibly intimidating, by the way, I think being able to trade 5,000 names means you probably shouldn't, but being able to figure out um, what you should be looking at is is a, a much harder problem now than it was when I was trading on the floor. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Listen, can I just perhaps maybe just sort of reset uh, this conversation back to perhaps starting with your, your own journey journey um, from 
you know, how you got into trading to begin with, um, those early experiences which you talked about, to kind of where you are now. What was your evolution as a trader? What was your evolution of of your philosophy, which we're going to explore a little bit as we go through this? Yeah, and I think I, I will start before I started trading to, with my education because it is unconventional for uh, the path of a trader. So a lot of the traders in particular that we hire, our approach is very quantitative and analytical. So we tend to hire people with quantitative and analytical backgrounds, people from finance, certainly, but also physics, applied mathematics, computer science. All of those people tend to do well in our system of trading. That said, I was an interdisciplinary major as an undergraduate where I studied a combination of anthropology, psychology, linguistics, and education. Wow. So I created my own major while I was in college that focused on, on uh, deaf culture and language, so American Sign Language and the deaf communities uh, and um, the way um, deaf students are taught. So I was working as a sign language interpreter while I was in college and teaching an American Sign Language class and did not have any aspirations of moving into trading. Okay. As I was graduating from college, I figured I needed to do something. I needed to find uh, a way to use uh, my skills. And I looked into uh, education. So I thought about uh, working as an educator uh, in schools for the deaf, um, but didn't know that that would be fulfilling for me for the long term. So I considered a bunch of other paths as well. And as I was thinking, well, I should probably get something that pays me. Uh, let me look at the jobs that are available for somebody with my uh, unique background and the opportunities that presented themselves were things like consulting, which um, as the more I dug into consulting, the more I thought, I don't know how I, without any business experience, could give other companies advice on how they should run their business. So that didn't feel like a great fit for me. Uh, I applied to law school and got a scholarship to uh, to law school. And I thought that's a you know pretty reasonable skill set to fall back on. And maybe I'll do that. But as I was looking at it, I also met a... Um, uh, a specialist on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And I was visiting a friend of my father's who was a broker on the floor of the stock exchange. And the more I saw about uh, stock brokerage, the more I was sure that this was not the right role for me. It felt uh, like a, a sales job where I did not fully understand the product I'd be selling. I, I just didn't, didn't love brokerage. But then when I started speaking to the specialist, it was a role that I didn't even know existed. And he was talking about making... Um, capital allocation decisions with imperfect information and the fact that they were providing two-sided markets. Um, I thought that sounded fascinating. And the more I looked into that, the more excited I got about uh, finance and thought, this is something I could give it uh, a shot. And he then also introduced me to the concept of derivatives. And, and one of the big differences between the stock market game and the derivatives game was the positive sum or or non-zero sum nature of stock trading versus the zero sum nature of derivatives trading. That whatever one person won in derivatives trading, somebody else lost, which really appealed to me as uh, as a competitive person, as a gamer, as, uh, as a former athlete. That sounded uh, like an attractive world to be in because it would be, you know, regularly stimulating. Where um, I was surrounded by other smart people that were that were also trying to figure out uh, the best way to uh, to achieve their goals, and their goals, like I said, are zero sum. So that uh, that felt exciting to me, and that's what led me uh, to apply to, and then you know, thankfully receive a job uh, with SIG. And I've been 
I've been with Susquehanna from the start of my career. So I, I know at the uh, at the start, you said most of the career has been spent at Susquehanna. Um, a, a small tweak to that, which is that it's been from the from the first day working in finance, uh, I've been working for uh, for the same group. But your role has evolved, hasn't it? You've been quite through quite a few different versions of yourself. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, um, so I started off, like I said, on the floor of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, trading equity options. Um, I started off. Um, as an assistant, where I hopped around uh, helping a couple of our different uh, senior traders, uh, there was uh, one woman I was I was trading or I was assisting one of our traders I was I was working for, who I I still credit with the bulk of my education in um, in how to trade. You know, it's sort of like uh, when you're learning when you're learning to drive. It doesn't matter how many times you read the manual; it's, you have to get behind the wheel in order to uh, to understand what you're actually doing. In the same way, um, this trader that I was working for did a really good job of not only talking to me about the theory and the you know, the expectations behind our models and and how our our theoretical pricing worked, but but really got me to understand the the nuanced aspects of of being in the driver's seat of, of really trading and making the decisions about uh, about allocating uh, capital under conditions of uncertainty where you you actually have to do it right you actually have to. Uh, to, to put money at risk and and um, then check your results. So um, uh, so I worked uh, as an assistant and then I returned to the floor to, uh, to trade um, options on Dell, D-E-L-L, the computer company, which uh, at the time that I uh, joined the crowd was the most uh, actively traded equity option uh, in the U.S. So it was a, a very busy uh, place to learn, uh, which was which was wonderful for me. It was it was a, a lot of opportunity to uh, to uh, you know, a lot of repetitions at uh, at making trading decisions, which was great. And then pretty soon after I started trading on the floor, an opportunity came up to trade in an upstairs trading environment. So off of the floor uh, on one of our trading desks uh, to trade um, American depository receipts. So this is an international equity arbitrage. Um, American depository receipts are receipts held by a depository bank on uh, on a um, common stock listed in another country, so you know Deutsche Telekom is listed on uh, the the German exchanges, and then um, uh, the Bank of New York owns a big block of that stock and sells receipts on that on the New York Stock Exchange. So there's a, an arbitrage relationship between them where if you can buy Deutsche Telekom at one price in the U.S., sell it at another price in Germany. Um, then and you can see what the equivalent price would be. You can capture uh, the difference in those prices, but of course, the only way to capture the differences in those prices is to then also lock in the uh, the currency exchange because uh, you when you buy in the U.S. you're paying out dollars. When you sell it in uh, Germany, you're receiving well now euros. At the time, I was trading in Deutschmarks, uh, but you're uh, so you're um, so you end up with a uh, with currency exposure that you can then trade out of by trading uh, the underlying currency. So I traded. Uh, this arbitrage, um, or I traded these trades, which were driven by this arbitrage relationship, which does not necessarily mean that we always traded the arbitrage. We mm -hmm. actually frequently had positions for various reasons. Um, and around that time, we were opening up our operations in Dublin, Ireland. So uh, I moved to Europe to uh, to help set up that operation, continued trading the ADR uh, trade for, for some time, but also started our single stock uh, derivatives desk while I was in Europe, um, also traded a bunch of, of uh, products that were, 
I would say more quantitative in nature. So I worked very closely with our quantitative researchers to understand uh, how best to model non-traditional products that were that were traded. Um, uh, again, mostly in Europe, you know, a lot in France and a lot in Germany uh, at the time. Um, and then after some time trading in, in Europe, I was asked to move back to the U.S. to move from the trading side to the business side and help oversee our global business development, um, our recruiting uh, efforts, our training efforts, um, uh, all of the matters related to personnel, so compensation, uh, personnel moves, things like that, and worked really closely with our general operating officer and chief operating officer to to help run the day-to-day business. Mm -hmm. And it was important for the management that the people running the day-to-day business understood trading, understood the way we talk about risk, understood the way we talk about expectation and outcomes, because it would be really bad if the person making compensation decisions didn't understand the difference between somebody who was making three big bets a year that either you know paid off a lot or had a, had a big loss, but still had you know some expectation versus someone else who's making a thousand bets a day that were all small um, and uh, and cumulative in time, and therefore the 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 variance of those uh, of those bets would wash out a lot more over time. Um, so I was in that role for for some time until um, uh, we saw a lot of risk accumulating in our fixed income business. So. I think a lot of people know the story of, of 2007 into 2008 and the and the uh, financial crisis. And a lot of that was a crisis uh, around fixed income and uh, the the decoupling of the fixed income securities from their derivatives. That there was there was this big break between the two, which ended up leading to massive capital calls, which ended up leading to people having to liquidate other positions, and and that was a, a big part of the story behind. The financial crisis. So around that time, I moved in to to oversee our fixed income trading at the firm, right? Uh, in order to again bring the decision processes that we had in other areas into uh, into that part of the uh, the trading world. So, what is your role today? How would you describe your role today? Yeah. So um, after after getting our fixed income um, world stabilized and and, uh, and getting a, a a new person in the in the head of fixed income seat that that really understood the, the trading there very well and the risk very well, I moved back to the administrative side of the business to to co-run our education and recruiting programs. So I taught all of our junior traders along with my colleagues. Uh, I taught them the basics of derivative valuation and pricing, uh, option risk. Uh, some game theory and decision science and how we apply that to, to trading. Um, we spend a lot of time playing games, things like poker, uh, to model this this risk transfer that happens uh, in a trading environment. But ultimately, the most important thing that we do on the education side is mock trade. So we put them in the exact same position that they would be make uh, that they would be in as traders, and they're making the same types of decisions just without any capital at risk. Right. So I did that for about a decade, um, and and that was a, a big part of my contribution, I think, to the growth of the firm. Currently, I am overseeing a, a new business venture for us. So we have moved into reinsurance. Uh, so we have a Bermuda-based uh, reinsurance company, and I am the CEO of that group. Uh, in addition to to looking at some U.S. 
insurance brokerage, which we're developing currently. Right. Okay. Okay. And I think one of one of the themes that we, because you, you spend a lot of time with educating traders, I know you're very passionate about that, and you've got some really well developed thoughts about that. Uh, and you know, one one of the angles that we we work on um, when we do these podcasts, and that we we do it ourselves in our own work, it is trying to help people improve their performance um, in what is quite a crazy, insane job most of the time. It's dealing with uncertainty, dealing with complexity, um, dealing with a lack of knowledge um, of what's really happening out there sometimes. And um, this, this sort of randomness that sort of we, we, we or people as traders are just, in, just sitting in the middle of, trying to make sense of. Um, and I know that's something you're passionate about. And, you know, you've talked about the idea that traders are not, born they're made um so I, I guess we just want to hear you know a little bit about um where that where that came from what your your ideas about that are what, what your philosophy is and and you know how you know what what are the principles you apply that tries to get tries to help traders become made <laughs> in a sense yeah so uh it, it's that's very much something that that we as a company as a, uh, have as part of our cultural fabric. I, I want to be clear that this was not my addition to the the approach that the firm took, but very much from from day one, uh, the way the firm saw training and and, and the, the ability to find smart people. And if you have smart people, you can teach them the fundamentals of trading. So understanding what that looks like really requires you to understand what we think it is to be a good trader. And being a good trader means that you are doing a good job of making positive expectancy decisions. So you're making decisions that in the long run should work out so that they uh, have a, a better return than uh, than not. Um, and uh, And in order to do that, you have to understand both the um, structurally, sort of what uh, what the products are, but you also have to understand the information embedded in uh, the trades that people want to do. The understanding structurally what the the trades are is is a very easy thing, right? Uh, well, <laughs> I take that back. It's a difficult thing, but it is a, a very straightforward um, uh, thing to be able to teach. That I can teach you what a put option is that it is the right but not the obligation to sell a certain security at some time in the future as at a um at a given price and and you know and then I can teach you mechanically how to go about pricing that this is this is what you would find in a finance textbook right if if you were to if you were to buy the um you know the John Hull uh, options and derivatives book this is what you'll get out of that is Functionally, what it, what are these products? What are these risk products that you're trading? But that doesn't teach you the the more important part of what we think goes into this, which is how do you make decisions about where you want to buy and where you want to sell? That you are trading some version of future truth, right? You're you are trying to position yourself so that if some outcomes arise, that you're in a position to uh, to win to that. That that you're making positive expectation trades. That 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 the 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 trading that you're doing should lead to uh, to good outcomes, but there's a lot of noise in it. 
right? There, there are lots of times where you can make the right decision and lose. There's also times where you can make the wrong decision and win, that you can have good outcomes, even though you, you should not have had the position on that, uh, that you had on. So being able to decouple the outcome from the decision is an important part of the trading approach or the training approach that we have to trading so that we can then talk about the decision process separate from the outcome. In the long run, with enough plays, with enough uh, exposures, the outcome is going to look a lot like the expectation of the outcome, right? That's the law of large numbers is that if you're making enough of these decisions that have some type of positive expectation, then you're going to realize that positive expectation. Likewise, if you're making mistakes over and over again, you're going to end up bleeding out that money over time. And you're going to see that in your results, that your results are going to be negative because your decisions were negative. But looking at each individual decision, you're going to have um, a lot of a lot of times where you made the right choice, where you made a you know a great a great decision, where you were sixty percent to win. Uh, so you know sixty percent to win is you know only forty percent of the time do you lose. Well, that's that happens a lot. That you know that that's that, that's still you know forty percent of of uh, of your days are. Uh, you know, constitute a, a good chunk of your year, right? There, there are going to be lots of days where if you're making that fantastic decision that you're going to end up with losers over and over again. And being able to appropriately look at the decision process is uh, as separate from that outcome is uh, is where we spend a lot of our time. And, and, and that leads us to talking about heuristics and biases. It leads us to talk about uh, naturalistic decision-making, which I know um, is something that uh, that you've talked about before on your show. Um, that we're looking at um, at how risk actually gets um, uh, priced appropriately in the marketplace. And we can't tell that only by looking at one outcome or even a handful of outcomes. Interesting. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's like we say, we talk about it's like it's easy, easy language. There's a, there's a whole different language spectrum that goes with these um, with the whole education, you know, it's, it's, it's teaching people the language that goes with the fact that there's this learning. I'm very interested to sort of understand that from your experience with these, with these cohorts of traders that are going through this experience within the business, that you know, what aspect of trading do, do the students, as, they, as perhaps we call them, uh, what do they have most difficulty with? Is it the entry? Is it the exit? It's the once the risk is on. There's, there's the turmoil. What was, what's, proved to be most difficult for them to cope with? I think the most difficult aspect, not just for our students, but for our experienced traders as well, is handling that noisy uh, outcome, handling the noise that comes after the fact. Um, I, I mentioned before the types of people that we tend to hire are people from computer science or physics or, or finance backgrounds among, you know, thankfully people with deaf culture and language majors. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of those people are come from places where ultimately if you can figure out a system, then that is, then you've defined it and, and you can move forward. Uh, biologists are, are very much in this camp, right? If you can describe the way biological systems interact, no matter how complex they are, once you've described them, then you can just build on that and you've got a description of an underlying process. You know, germ theory comes, you know, once germ theory is developed, everything that you can sort of bolt onto germ theory ends up being correct because germ theory itself is a, is a good underlying description of, of the interaction of, of these, um, 
of, of germs and 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 health, right? But in our world, once you've figured out the way a system works, it's going to change the way you behave. And once you behave differently, the system itself changes fundamentally. So we are in this in this world of, of constant of constant change, and part of the change is our own impact on it, right? For astrophysicists, the way a a, a star um, you know behaves has nothing to do with whether or not we're observing it. But for a trader, the way a stock moves has everything to do with our perception of the way that stock should move. Once we have an opinion about it, we then go out and do something differently and somebody else can see what we did and they're building that into their system and their model of the way the world works. So so dealing with this constant change, I think, is is the biggest surprise, especially since we're bringing in really high level smart people. Right. We're not bringing in people who are used to being wrong and we're putting them in a world where they're going to be wrong a lot and not wrong necessarily in um, in the direction of the of the trades that they make, but certainly wrong in terms if they only evaluate it on the outcome, but even wrong in terms of having to change their mind frequently and being open and willing to change your mind and and, and having the right mindset to say this you know, this I think is correct for now, but it might not be correct tomorrow is a is a a new experience for for a lot of these people again who are accustomed to to being you know A plus students to 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 getting things right, and we're putting them in a world where they're not getting a lot right uh, all the time. We're going to return to this fascinating podcast shortly. First, we want to tell you a little bit about ourselves at Alpha Mind, where we strongly advocate for the principle that the most valuable investment a trader can make is the one they make in themselves, and for businesses, it's the ones they make in developing their people and their talent. Our services are centered around trader performance coaching, leadership and executive coaching, team coaching, and our impactful high-performance trading workshop programs. If you're keen to learn more about our work and how we can assist you or your business, we invite you to explore our offerings at alpha-mind.net or reach out to us at info at alpha-mind.net. Now let's get back to this fascinating podcast. So how how are you um, helping those um, students to adjust in that in that situation and context you describe? Because I mean, it it sounds like you're talking about a very reflexive experience is what's happening for a lot of them. There are a few ways that we do this. One, like I said, one of the major things that we do is eventually get them to the point where they're mock trading, so mm-hmm. where they're making decisions where they're not actually putting capital at risk. And we get to really talk about both the information available and the decision the, the decision that was made and the way more experienced people would make that same decision. So we surround them with experienced senior traders as they're mock trading. And they might say, you know, somebody came in to sell this asset. So I moved the price down because I want to make sure that I'm balancing supply and demand. We could say, okay. But look at it in the context of all of these other things that are happening at the same time, even though that seller came in, that is inconsistent with the rest of the fabric of the trading that we've seen up to now. This is actually a good time to say that these pieces of information are mutually exclusive. Here's a time where you could take a position and comfortably know that you'd be able to trade out of that risk through the other opportunities that are present in the market. You don't have to necessarily move out of the way. And in fact, if you do 
somebody else is going to step in and fill in that liquidity because of the rest of this picture. So we get to have the modeling of the senior trader and their thought process articulated for the junior traders so that they can hear how they might be thinking about a problem incorrectly. The other thing that, that we're doing that, that's, um, that's helping is really not just encouraging, but really forcing communication. That, uh, that one of the approaches that, that I've always taken uh, is informed by um, a educational philosopher named Lev Vygotsky. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lev Vygotsky, but, but one of the, one of the um, th- philosophical educational principles that Vygotsky had is this idea of the more informed other. That if you can, and, and Vygotsky really focused on child development and, and the development of education at the, at the earlier stages, but I was really thinking about it in the exact same context and later stages, and you mentioned before zone of proximal development, that if you can get somebody into an area where they're not quite comfortable with the decisions that they're making, they don't really know what they're doing, but they can get there with some help. That's where you want to put them in order to, uh, to to get to this educational experience that you're talking about. That's where they're going to feel the discomfort of not having the the security in in and being in their zone of zone of mastery, the the area that you know where they know everything very well. But instead, they're in this area where, with some push, with some help from a more knowledgeable mentor, they can end up applying things that they've seen in other contexts to this new context and, and feel more comfortable that the approach that they're taking is the appropriate one. That's why we have these senior people in the room with them as they are learning to trade. We don't just want them up against a system trying to develop their own uh, their own approaches because frequently that's going to lead to, um, to bad habits that develop that they don't even realize are bad habits because it works in a small context, but not in a in a broader context. Instead, we want them to to develop a thought process, an underlying approach that they can apply to these uh, contexts. That's informed by the experience of more uh, of more seasoned traders and their own personal experience as well, right? So that they get to marry um, uh, the information that they can glean from the market with uh, an approach to how to think about new information and how to think about things like paradigm shifts uh, in the marketplace, which, which you, anything that, that, uh, that could be programmed into uh, an algorithm, we want to program into an algorithm, right? We want, we, we know that their algorithms are going to be more consistent. They're going to uh, apply principles uh, consistently and, and, and appropriately given all the information available to them. But we also know that they're going to be wrong because they're not going to be able to take in the totality of the, the quality of the information that they're getting uh, or the volume or whatever it might be. And that's where we need people sitting in the seats to make decisions and figure out when to change the parameters behind those systems, uh, when, to, uh, when to take a different approach in the market. Here's a question for you. So, in, in terms of if, if you were to, to pick sort of a, a bunch of ideal, what you would consider ideal candidates to go through a training program, okay, you, you've mentioned that SMART is important. I, I get it. But are there any other qualities or ingredients to, to them that you think actually, if, if you had these attributes, actually you would have a very, very good chance of actually not just going through the program, but coming out of it flourishing. Do you, do you have a sense of what they may look like? Yes. 
we, th- this is something we've given a lot of thought to and, and have had uh, tons of conversations around is, uh, and if I'm talking about an individual, I will say that there is a, a combination of the three legs of the stool are strong quantitative and analytical skills, which is um, orthogonal to strong interpersonal skills. So not negatively correlated with, but uncorrelated with. So we're looking for people who are strong on sort of both of these dimensions. So uh, quantitative analytical skills, interpersonal skills. So the ability to communicate with others, whether that's brokers in terms of being able to um, create a relationship where you're developing order flow, or really also with their peers in the trading world um, so they can talk about, um, so they can learn from others and teach others, which is an important part of our our culture. And then the the third dimension, which feels a lot like it could be a combination of the other two, but I think it isn't a, a separate skill. Uh, the third dimension is gambling skills. So once you have the information about uh, what is a fair value and are, are able to, to draw the, the order out of the market, are you appropriately taking risk? Are you able to identify what risk looks like? Uh, and are you um, um, taking it uh, in the right way. So, so the individual that we're looking for is sort of a high performer on all of those dimensions. And, and we have found that being a super high performer on one dimension does not make up for low quality on the other two dimensions. That we have found people who are great gamblers, but just have terrible interpersonal skills. And they don't do well with us in the long run. We found people who are incredibly analytical and they are wonderful at things like quantitative research, but then they can't pull the trigger when it comes time to uh, to actually put money at risk in the trading market. So, so their gambling skills are low, um, but their math skills are high. That's not good. That doesn't work. Um, and it's and it's because they you know they end up not trading. So, so figuring out the right balance between those three legs uh, ends up being pretty important for us. So, you know that that's really struck a chord with me because it's. Um, um, and I've spoken about this on podcasts before, but if if I go back to my my trading career, which was close to twenty five years, um, I was working in the investment banking world, but I, I would probably you would have described me more as a prop trader, more, more of a position taker rather than someone who who traded flow. Perhaps in the early days, I was a a flow guy. I was doing a lot more arbitrage, but in my latter years, I moved to this more directional aspect but i kind of had a a bit of a crisis of confidence roughly halfway through my career um i I would say i lost my way a little bit and those three things which you 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 talked about there so i I was very strong analytically okay i wouldn't necessarily necessarily say quantitatively but I, I could look at a market, I could analyze markets, I could bring together lots of research, uh, my own intuitive sense of what was happening, my own analysis using technicals um, and the fundamentals. Uh, and I could construct a story and find value in the market. Um, I had strong interpersonal skills. I, I communicated a lot with other people. I talked with brokers regularly. I talked with other traders. Um, so I think I, I had two out of three. But at this halfway stage of my career, and it was actually going through a process with a coach that made me realize that I wasn't a good risk taker. Okay, I'd I'd been okay to a point 
obviously, you know, I'd, I'd been sitting on a prop desk, a, a major investment bank, but it occurred to me that I wasn't good at taking risk. Um, and, and at that point in my career, I, I kind of, I wouldn't say I reinvented myself, but I suddenly realized, you know, Steve, you're, you're not going to last much longer unless you can develop your risk-taking piece. And, and I had to develop that in line with my personality. You know, we've all got different risk personalities. So there was, there was, I was never going to be the, the, the big guy who took a huge position for six months. But I did have and find a way of taking risk that suited who I was and who, to, you know, suited my philosophy um, to taking risk and looking at markets and, and, and really enabling me to monetize the value that I was pretty good at finding. And I, th- I think, you know, you, you, you've really hit the nail on the head. There, there, are, there are those three areas, but they're all mutually exclusive. If you're good at two of them, you know, you, you, you can probably develop the other one. That, that's what I believe. So it's interesting when you, 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 you said on, you know, the interview we heard you had was the one with Shane Parrish um, of the Knowledge Project. And, and I think you said in that, you know, traders are, are made, not born. Um, and is is that still yeah. something you subscribe to? Uh, absolutely, and and one of the things that you just said that 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 I wanted to follow up on was that you said that you needed to develop your risk taking. Mm-hmm. That that what you didn't say importantly was that you needed to go take more risk. Right? It wasn't the action that you needed to do; it yep. was the education that mattered. Yep. Right? You needed to to work on it and think about it differently, or think about it um, more completely. One of the things that that I see frequently from the outside talking to non-traders, talking to non-finance people about our role is they say, man, what you're doing looks really risky. And what they mean frequently is what you're doing looks really reckless, right? They're, they do not make a distinction between measured risk and the ability to, uh, to see where, um, where you're taking appropriate risk for the amount of capital that you have or the amount of uh, information available in the market versus saying you're doing something that is going to have a big outcome one way or another, that's risky. But I can take tons of positions that look Mm. risky that are really just reckless, right? That really just means I haven't given anything enough thought and therefore this is is not a smart risk for me to take. Or I, likewise, I could take positions that have huge outcomes, bigger outcomes than than what we would normally see. But it's because I've got much better research and much better information and much better handle on what the risk looks like and where I can offset that risk with hedges or where I already naturally offset that risk with other positions that we have. And then I'm not doing something that's reckless. In fact, I'm doing something that is reducing our risk of ruin. That is that is better for us, but it looks riskier to mm. people who don't understand that underlying concept and being able to talk through that with somebody and, and develop their education around that. I firmly believe that I can get anybody to understand it. If, if you give me enough time with them and I can really talk through different examples and different scenarios with them. And that's exactly what, what our approach is to developing traders as opposed to looking for natural born traders. I don't need somebody who comes in, you know, wild west style slinging their guns ready to uh uh you know to to take on gigantic risks where they don't have good underlying information that's reckless that's not what i want but i can take somebody who is not inclined to put on risky positions and explain 
why this ends up working out best in the long run and get them to feel that this is not a risky endeavor just because they take on a position that has volatility, but in fact uh, has positive expectancy and, and, and we can talk through the, you know, the appropriate um, balance. So I believe that on any of those three dimensions, on, on the risk taking, on the quantitative and analytical skills, and on the interpersonal skills, that, that with training, anybody can get to an appropriate point where they're able to, to do a good job of this. We as a firm are very big subscribers to the growth mindset. Right. Yes. That nobody comes in with a fixed set of 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 characteristics, but instead, you know, in in a very much Carol Dweck uh, uh, type way, Carol Dweck, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, educator who really focuses on uh, has has brought the uh, the term growth mindset to uh, into common parlance uh, that if you have the idea that that people can be different later than they are now, which seems you know, on its surface, like who could possibly disagree with that? But once you accept that, then you can say, okay, well, then I can teach people how to do something that they're not necessarily comfortable doing today, whether that's taking risk, whether that is getting better better educated in the underlying um, quantitative models, uh, or even if that's on how to inter interact better interpersonally with other people. Can I just go a little bit deeper onto the, uh, the interpersonal question? Because I can kind of understand quant education um, and I can quite, kind of understand gambling skills education and the, the poker stuff and the the, um, you know, the practice marketplaces you can create for people to interact with but but what are you doing around the um, the inner person what, what does that teaching look like and what aspects do you really focus upon yeah so as part of our education program there are two aspects of that that I think uh, really come through one is Communicating with um, with brokers or with um, with outside the firm, communicating with people who are not part of your team, right? So uh, I don't want to say adversarial communications because I firmly believe that every negotiation is collaborative and not um, uh, uh, collaborative and cooperative because um, otherwise you don't reach an agreement, right? But but with people who do not necessarily have the same aligned interests that you have. That's one form of communication that I'm talking about. And then the other is with people who are aligned with you, who, who do have the same goals and are uh, um, internal to the team. And the way we do this is, again, by modeling it in our mock trading environment, where we are acting as external brokers or external sources of order flow and and bringing orders to, the, um, to our uh, junior traders where they have to interact with it and think about how their communications um, impact whether or not they're going to get the trade or whether or not they're going to get additional information about the trade, whatever it might be. And we stop and talk a lot about how to have those types of communications. And the other piece, which I think is actually the more important piece, is really encouraging and forcing people to talk frequently about their thought process, that we are really, really good when somebody else tells us what they're thinking about at seeing where the holes are, right? We're really good at saying, well, gosh, you certainly weren't thinking about this important aspect or, you know, you're, you're, you know, in the language of, of biases and heuristics, you're getting anchored or uh, this sounds a lot like hindsight bias or whatever it might be. We're really bad at doing that analysis on ourselves, right? We're really bad at, at when we, when we're going through a thought process of recognizing, you know, right now I'm, I'm falling into, the, the trap of confirmation bias. 
So if we can really encourage people to say their thoughts out loud, talk about their thought process, then somebody else can say, Mark, that sounds a lot like you're falling into the trap of confirmation bias. And once we have the common language around what these biases look like, you can say, oh, gosh, yeah, no, I can see that now. I, I, I think you're right. And maybe I should start thinking about uh, about this in a different way. Um, and again, that's done by modeling. So in this Vygotskyan way of having um, better mentors that are able to show you how to do this. Um, but it's, again, also very much part of the culture that 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 we are in, that, that, that people are sitting on a trading desk where all day long they're hearing people around them talk about um, why they are making the changes that they're making to the models and somebody else gets to challenge them on it. And nobody is ever feeling like they are being personally challenged because we all have the same goal, which is finding truth. That there's some ground truth that we're looking to effectively uncover when we're when we're entering trades. If we knew the future state of the world, trading would be super easy. And as we approach that that um, that task of trying to find that truth, we get to attack ideas violently because we're not attacking the people who have those ideas. Those people have the same goals that we do. They want to attack their ideas also because the goal is the same, which is to end up uncovering truth. So we've created a culture where it's totally appropriate to challenge what somebody else thinks, whether that person is the you know the junior trader who's been on the desk for four days, or the founder of the firm who's been uh, who's been at the helm for forty years. Either way, it's totally appropriate to say that doesn't sound right to me, and here's why. And it's okay if you're wrong in your criticism, but but by encouraging this communication, we end up doing a better job of getting toward that truth. I'm, I'm laughing because I uh, I wish I'd have known this a few months ago. I, I, I've <laughs> This is a chance for me to do a little plug as well. I've got a book coming out in January. It's called Mastering the Mental Game of Trading. Um, and, and, and we, you know, we're both our business, Alpha Mind, we're big advocates for performance development, um, uh, managing yourself better through the trade, uh, being more structured, having a process, seeing the risk process as, as something far more than just, you know, finding value or finding an idea, but actually, you know, improving how you, ex- you know, execute it and monetize it, which, of course, has, there, there's so many different aspects to it, including, you know, realizing the reflexivity within markets. Um, but I... I, I I'm aware the industry does a really bad job of this. It does a really bad job of educating people in trading. There's this, there's still through, I think, 99% of the industry, this kind of sink, sink or swim mentality. You either have it or you don't. One of the reasons why I was laughing is I've written towards the end of it that there's, I don't know any firms perhaps other than Bridgewater that put this real emphasis on developing their people constantly. And now I'm hearing you talk, and I'm thinking there is another firm, <laughs> and I, you know, so I, I apologise for you in the book. You should have, if I'd have known that, Susquehanna would have been in there. But it sounds like this is really a, <laughs> it's a big part of your secret sauce. Maybe there's an opportunity to put us in the uh, the uh, errata of the book, the uh, the addenda, or you know, a new oh, footnote, which is. Uh, <clears throat> just one more small version. Piece. But it is, <laughs> it, it is, I think, the, yeah, perfect. Right. We'll, we'll be in volume two. Um, I, I think that, that it is the, one of the fundamental strengths that we really have is this philosophical approach to thinking that traders can be made that forces us 
to say if someone's not a good trader, it's not their fault. Mm. It's our fault. The the burden lies on us to do a better job of training them. There's um, this is tangentially related, but hopefully I'll be able to bring it back. Are, are you familiar with the the classic uh, um, problem of the the ball and the bat costing a dollar ten? Do you know this? Yes, yes, it's part of a lecture okay. I give. <laughs> I, I will. I will. Uh, um, I, I'll, I'll state the the entire problem so that your listeners can uh, can think along. But uh, the question is: a ball and a bat cost a dollar ten together, and the ball costs a or, or the, sorry, the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? I'll pause here for a second so people can think about it. And the classic result of this is that people give a quick, intuitive answer that is incorrect. And the intuitive answer here that is incorrect is to say that the ball costs 10 cents. When in fact, that does not satisfy the criteria because if the ball costs 10 cents, then the bat would cost a dollar more than that, which would be a dollar and 10 cents. And the two together would cost a dollar 20 cents, which is too much. We want them to be a dollar ten cents together. Therefore, the ball must cost five cents. So far, so what? Right. All, all we've said so far is that that people answer intuitively, and, and there's not all that much that's all that interesting about it um, until you start digging deeper into it. So, so recently, um, just just this past week, I saw the research came, uh, come out. I'm not sure when the research was conducted, but um, uh, Andrew Meyer and Shane Frederick went back and asked. I think it was 93 variations on this problem. And they had um, uh, um, a bunch of different um, people that they were able to ask these variations to. So they had thousands of people in their sample from, from Google surveys to, um, uh, to Mechanical Turk to uh, a couple different uh, areas that, that they're able to look at this. And my favorite outcomes from this were one, that they still found uh, exactly what the original research found, which is that the majority of people give the intuitive answer and not the reflexive answer. But the more interesting pieces of, of information I saw was one variation. They said, you know, the ball costs, um, or, or the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. Uh, how much does the ball cost? Consider whether or not the ball could cost five cents. So they're, they're prompting people with, you know, the, like take a beat here on reading this sentence and think about whether or not this could be the case. And in fact, that doubled the number of people that said five cents is the answer, but it only doubled it to 31% of respondents. The majority of people still got it wrong. But my favorite variation was another one where they asked the question in the same way. And then in bold underneath of it, it said, the answer to this question is five cents on the blank below, write five cents. And that got 77% of people to write five cents as the answer, which means that even when you're told, here is the answer, this is what the right outcome should be, 23% of people still don't get it right. So coming back to you know sort of how this feeds into to what we're doing as traders is that there are some people that are uh, in what, what uh, Meyer and Frederick call the hopeless group, which is even when you tell them the truth, they just can't get it. They're just not going to believe it. They're just not going to share it. But there's a good number of people that are in uh, in this um, this other group. I forget exactly what they called it in their research, but it's basically if prompted, they can think about things in a better way, right? Th th these are the people who, when said, think about whether or not five cents makes sense. 
are able to say, oh yeah, it does. That yeah, okay, I see that I I made a leap there, but on on prompting with education with help, I can get to the right answer. That's what our approach is in our education program is is making sure that we are giving people enough context that they can improve their decision process. Yeah, so that that's fascinating. So I, I just very quickly when when I ask that question on the I. I I deliver a lecture every year on behavioural finance for the um, the Society of Technical Analyst Diploma Program, which we, we used to deliver at London School of Economics before the COVID days, but now it's online. Um, so we don't get a chance to ask this question and see people's reactions. But um, when I asked that question, I, I used to present evidence or, or data that said apparently less than half the students who were tested on that at MIT, Harvard or Princeton got that question right. And um, the failure rate apparently at other universities was over 80%. And we, we, we give that as an example of overconfidence, over-reliance on intuition, um, which leads to these very simple errors. Um, and there's a lot of other great examples of similar questions to this. Um, it, it's almost so simple that you don't think about it is the problem. Yeah, absolutely, which, which is very much describes a lot of trading. And, and a lot of really anything that, that takes years of expertise to develop. And, you know, I've heard you guys talk on your show before about, uh, you know, the, the expertise of, of pilots and why they still use checklists and, and you know, all kinds of other areas where um, expertise grows with time. I think back to one of the times when we were teaching um, poker to a, a new group of our students and I've been playing poker for years and years. I've played tens of thousands of hours of poker at this point, and I've gotten uh, pretty good at understanding a lot of what goes into the decision process behind um, uh, how to bet a hand. And we were playing a variation of the game that this student had never seen before. So we were playing a, a game uh, called Omaha High Low or Omaha Eight or Better. And I don't need to get into the rules other than to say, if you've played Hold'em before, you're going to have a lot of bad intuitions and bad heuristics that do not right. apply to, to Omaha. That Omaha, you start with four cards instead of two like you would in Hold'em. But, uh, and it's a high-low game, which means that the best high hand wins and the best low hand wins. There's a bunch of variations that go into this. And I was introducing it to these students for the first time. And one of the students, and, and, and this is the game that I've played most often in casinos, by the way. So I've played most of my real hours putting my capital at risk in this game, which means I've really had a reason to think through how to do this well. And the student said, okay, like I've, I've played uh, a little Hold'em before. Now that you're teaching against this game, I guess it'll probably take a session or two before we're as good as you are. So there's a, there's a chance that that's true. You might be right about that, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to keep my edge for a long, long time because there's so much in here that you don't even understand matters. Uh, that, um, but because uh, this is the Dunning-Kruger problem, right? Because you know so little about this, you don't even know how much you have to learn about this. You can't even conceptualize of, of, of how little you know because you don't know enough to know uh, how how deficient your current skills are. Uh, versus, and I'm not I'm not talking myself up as the greatest Omaha eight player of all time. I'm just saying. I'm pretty sure I'm better than somebody who's never played the game, which doesn't feel like too big of a brag, but still feels like a, a comfortable position to, to be in. Yeah, it's fascinating how uh, poker has so many lessons. And, um, and I think the important, the important story is that one has to have a co commitment of wanting to learn and to fail and then to learn and to go through the journey. 
But um, I think, as Steve said, on on, on some of his um, classic examples of you, know, you can't just decide to go boxing and decide to jump into the ring with Tyson as just sort of, you know, okay, I'm a boxer. You know, you've got you've got to go through the journey. Right? You've got to take the scrapes, the hits, the failures, the pain. Um, I guess the misery. There is something a misery creeps into the trading, and of course. You know, you've shared the gambling skills as one one of your three pillars, of course, and that uh, in your um, particular world, poker lines that. But for the evolving world of gaming, gambling skills could could mean something just slightly different to, to poker. I mean, I'm just putting that out there. Yes, the, the the Gen Zs of this world may be looking at. Um, the numbers of gambling in a very different way to perhaps we have looked at in terms of what we're going to see in a casino. Um, and I think um, they may be benefits from understanding that that world is particularly going to the world of algos and AI. And perhaps uh, it's a world that we're starting to understand, but others that are more Gen Z are probably much more understanding of what that means than an accepting of it um, compared to ourselves. But yeah, this um, the concept of the unbalanced stool is fascinating, and how actually, yeah, you try to trade off an unbalanced stool, you're going to be falling off of it. <laughs> you know, it just it's a very interesting image of the, the need for balance, um, but but I guess the need for tenacity as well, because if you're going to go on a journey that involved forty percent failure, sixty percent um, um, success, then you need to be pretty tenacious to carry on that journey. And so the, the resilient side is important. So I guess in the interpersonal, you must also have sort of a work around resilience as well and how, how people can also look at that. We talked at the very beginning about what's the most difficult part of the trader journey is that dealing with the noise, be, be that a, a junior trader or a seasoned trader. I guess we'll go back to the sort of the, the principles of the, the the interpersonal again. There must be things that you also look at to kind of give people perhaps a better chance of surviving that noise. Um, yeah, and and again, I think a lot of it comes back to uh, a lot of it comes back to that communication and the ability to talk uh, to talk about you know. A, not just doing the postmortem, but also doing the premortem, like talk about what things can go wrong and then uh, and then um, not being surprised when they do. One of the things that I've heard stand-up comedians talk about before is the fact that if you go to, they're not always going to have success, right? There are times where they're just not going to click with the audience and they're going to bomb, even though they're telling the same jokes that were hilarious the night before, right? So it's the same joke delivered the same way. Some people just don't click with it. And they say, I've heard, that if you hear nobody laugh and then a few seconds later, like four people start cracking up, those four people are the comedian's friends who are laughing at them bombing. That there's that there's this culture really appreciating the failure. It is hilarious that this thing that I know you do well is not going well for you tonight. That's so funny to me. In the same way, when we put on a big bet, when we have a trade where we think that we have uh, a reason to um, to take a position and it doesn't go well, we're not thrilled with it, right? That means that we lost money and, and we're unhappy about the outcome. But just recently, we had a position on in a security and the trader who had the position on 
uh, was very clear about why they put the position on, and it went terribly. It did not. It did not work out, and the reaction wasn't to you know sort of shamefully look away and not discuss it, but it was to laugh about. It. People on the trading desk were were having a you know, a, a big laugh, like, oh, I thought this was a sure thing. I thought that this is one that you wanted to bet big. It's, you know, apparently this didn't work out so great. And and having, a, again, a culture that can openly address the, uh, the, the failures as well as the successes and talk about it in a, uh, in a big way, then doesn't leave that person walking away, hanging their head saying, man, I can't believe everybody was laughing at me for this terrible trade. But instead, lets them join in and say, yeah, that was... Again, our goal is not to uh, always be right. It is to find better truth in the long run. And we can do that by attacking bad ideas or even good ideas that have bad outcomes. So, so it is, it's modeled by the people around them. Um, and it is, it's a, you know, there will still be people who are getting pretty upset when they have losing trades, even if they thought they made good decisions. Uh, that also keeps people looking for ways to improve in the long run. But, um, but there's definitely very much a culture of being accepting of uh, of, uh, of bad outcomes, of laughing at the uh, on the nights that the stand-up comedian bombs. Yeah, so hum- humility is important. Totally, yeah, and and humility leads to transparency, right? If I'm willing to accept that I could be wrong, then it's fine for me to talk about what I'm doing and have somebody point out where I was wrong. It's really, really dangerous if somebody. Um, is afraid to fail in front of their peers because then they're more likely to hide their errors and then their errors will compound uh, either in a legal way, hide them, like just not talk about them or in an illegal way and like not show uh, our operations department what trade they did because it didn't work out for them and they're going to try to get it back. This is what led to the downfall, for example, of of, uh, of Bearings Bank. I know that you guys um, uh, spoke to Nick Leeson uh, at one point. I think that this was the structural problem that ended up leading to uh, the downfall of bearings was just not being willing to say, whoops, I lost, made a bad decision, it went against me, uh, and and I've got to own that. I'll I'll tell you a very funny story about that very quickly. So at the time, I was working at Credit Suisse. And one of my colleagues had left about a year earlier to go to bearings on, on the on the on the rates desk, he was doing the funding managing the, the treasury book. And um, one of my uh, one of my futures brokers just came down the line and said, Are you hearing about any issues going on with bearings in, in their one of their Asian offices on the futures? And I said, No, no. And I said, Look, let me just check out because we've got a guy who works there. So uh, I shouted over to my colleague, you know, can you just check out with with Danny about uh, make sure everything's okay over there at Bearings? Um, so he gave Danny a ring. He said, Danny, anything going on with you guys in the uh, Asian futures? And he said, uh, no, not as far as I know. Um, and anyway, about two years later, you know, we were out having a beer and he told me he remembered that story. And he said, you know what? The funniest thing happened about an hour later after I asked, I got called up to the chairman's office. No one ever goes up to the chairman's office ever. Okay. He's on the top floor of this building in the city of London. And, and, you know, you just never meet him. And he said, I I got asked to go out there. And the chairman just went to me. "Um, You asked whether we had any problems in in our Asian office. I just want to let you that, no, we don't have any problems. (laughs) He said, wow, it it should have occurred to me at that moment. Yeah, we've got problems. That is a very, like, I, I, 
it's rare that people point out that they've stuck their head in the sand and they do not want to pull it out. And that sounds exactly yeah. what happened there, right? That's like, we're not even going to yeah. look into it because uh, I'm sure that it's fine. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it, it's just, you know, I mean, that, that's, you know, we talk about that lack of humility. You know, we talk about often people who are willing to ask for help. You know, people are willing to put their hand up. You know, everyone needs help at some point. Everyone needs support at some point. You know, I, I know a lot of the darkest moments in my career as a trader. I had someone around me who just kind of, in a, in a metaphorical way, they put an arm around me. They said, look, don't worry about this. This is going to turn around. You're okay. And those moments were just so important. And I think that's part of a, a great trading room. It's almost like you have a band of brothers mentality around there at Susquehanna from the learning, the development, the support, the whole way through that business. Yeah. And actually, you just brought up something that uh, that reminded me that, that I felt I gave an incomplete yeah. answer before. When asked what type of person we would want to hire to, to be able to do well in this process, and I talked about the individual, and I didn't talk about the group, that what we end up hiring is not um, – one person who's going to then do all of the trading for the firm, but we hire many people who are going to end up working together. And it's really important for me that we have diversity of thought in that group. You mentioned mm -hmm. a band of brothers and immediately my thought was, and sisters, right? Like that, I, 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 In my head, in my head, I'm standing here going, damn, I should have said brothers and sisters because it, it, yeah. it is so important and, to have that diversity within a group in many different forms and ways. So yes. Right. And I, yeah. I want I want different socioeconomic backgrounds. I want different um, ethnic backgrounds. I want different um, you know racial backgrounds, because all of this I think ends up doing exactly what we want to do, which is having different perspectives able to be um, uh, articulated. And if we create, if we do a good job of creating the culture where everybody feels comfortable communicating and searching for truth, then people with different experience can ask different questions to to help drive at that truth. Um, so, so importantly for me, I want the individual to be strong on those three dimensions. I want the group to look different from each other, to make sure that yes. we have a, a robust yes. enough um, population that not everybody that we don't fall subject to groupthink because we don't have you know the same type of person brought up in the same type of environment with the same type of philosophy and the same type of culture. Um, uh, but instead, we we end up uh, able to challenge each other. The person that I spent most of my career working with is uh, is she was my co-head of education while I was in the education department. She's a, a wonderful trader, a wonderful person. And we have very different perspectives on a lot of the things that go into you know, what we should be hiring for uh, and what's the best way to train people and how often should we be doing summative versus formative testing and you kind of all these things that go into the evaluation and growth process. And part of the reason that we worked really well together for so long is because we had different thoughts on this, yes. that if we had the same thought on this, we would be missing something very important, but because we thought about things differently, we were able to bounce off of each other uh, and through our, through our friction really create uh, something that was, uh, that was better than what either of us could do on and our the own. The opposite side of that is it usually ends in a car crash somewhere. Totally. So it's, Totally. It's really, really dangerous if you think you've got six different opinions when what you really have is one opinion voiced by six different people in the exact same way. You think that you're doing more more deep analysis than yeah, you are. And you get totally caught up in the confirmation bias, the, you know, the sort of cheer, cheering the, totally. the news that is meaningless and 
ignoring the sort of really important news because it doesn't agree with you. The uh, sort of um, uh, and I, th- I think we've we've all seen those sort of uh, disasters happening. So, so this 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 feels really big at Susquehanna. This kind of diversity, you know, gender diversity, socioeconomic diversity, um, and, and almost sort of allowing room for that to breathe as well. Absolutely, yeah. This is um, again. I think I think part of our DNA is is, is this idea that that uh, that we value. We value argument and not argument for the sake of argument, but argument for, again for the sake of finding truth. Yeah. For, for you know, let's let's really you know push on this a little bit to uh, to figure out how we could do it better. Yeah, we end up again having much deeper thoughts about the about uh, certain areas of interest that that collide in really um, beautiful ways in terms of our ability to to then parlay. Um, all these different approaches and different thoughts into um, into better trading um, ideas or technologies or uh, or models or whatever it might be. So it, it's very much a part of the fabric of, of Susquehanna. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Steve. I, I suppose it's um, time to start to, to to wrap this up. It is. It is. But there was one question, which um, perhaps not a question. It was it was something which I heard again in your Shane Parish. Uh, podcast and I, I loved it when you said it and I, I made a note of it and I just thought our audience need to hear it and hear your thoughts on it is where you said the answer to every trading question is it depends yes yeah. yes and I just wanted you maybe just to elaborate on that for our audience yeah so um <clears throat> there are more there's more information available than we're ever going to be able to access, right? We're we're never going to be able to process uh, everything, and the right approach at one time might be the wrong approach at another time, given you know a slightly different uh, set of circumstances. That that um, where depends is or, or the, the answer that that the the trade you know what to do next depends on something is a great start of a new line of questioning what does it depend on and it and in what way should you change your answer depending on the on, on the information that you find but if 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 you stopped at you know what should you do here and you know you should buy you know 10,000 shares when this happens it's like okay well you know if i change the if i change the the initial conditions just a little bit I'm going to change the outcome dramatically. If I change the way you behave in this situation just a little bit, I'm going to change the way other people react to it. So there's no there's no set answer. And to the extent that there is a set answer, uh, machines are taking care of that before you've ever been able to uh, even see the opportunity for the trade. So given that you're able to see a trade and make a trading decision, the right approach is going to depend on a lot of things. And all of those things are going to require analysis and reflection, right? And and starting at if you if you start at the point that that your answer is going to depend on something, you're going to start asking those questions and get the uh, the right people to weigh in and the right information back. Uh, another thing that that it's, that's important is that very rarely is there one answer that is right in all cases. Just yesterday, I was sitting on the trading desk. Uh, and on the other side of the desk was one of our senior index traders who I heard talking to one of his junior traders. 
Uh, and uh, he's, I wrote down what he said because it was so great. Um, and, and it's going to sound simple, silly that I'm even reading it, but it was, I'm not saying do this going forward. I'm saying try this for today. He was giving advice on, mm. on something to do. And, and importantly, the point that he was making was, look, I'm not revamping the way we're going to approach trading forever, but I am saying run this test. Look at this as an opportunity to get feedback from the marketplace about what would happen differently if we do something differently. And sometimes that's going to cost us. We're not going to make as much money as we would have made if we had done it the way we did it before. But sometimes it's going to give us information that's going to allow us to grow in a new direction. So I'm not saying do this going forward. I'm saying try this for today. I think that phrase is probably an important phrase for, for traders. And that's the answer to it depends. Don't change what you do forever. Change what you do right now. And see how that how that leads to a different impact, and and how that's going to change um, your your participation in the market in some way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you know, I've sort of I've thought of so many examples, and uh, you know, of how that worked. I mean, just just one example many years ago is is both uh, there was two of us trading on the desk on a, a rates business, and we had completely opposite views on the market. And over the next couple of weeks, we both made money. <laughs> We're completely opposite views on the market because there's a million ways right. to express your views in the market. Um, so, so that, that you know, that, I, I just thought that's a great example of of it depends. You know, um, so I, I just thought that was just such an amazing statement. Yeah, it's just been fascinating talking to Todd, and I guess giving Todd a bit of a platform to share the stuff that he's passionate about. Um, and you know, moving from trader to educator uh, and a sense of purpose about educating is, is really, really important, certainly to us as Stephen myself, ed- educators to some extent in, 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 in what we do. And I guess there's the whole point of this podcast, really. It's thought leadership. It's, it's talking about other people's stories and understanding from the, the biggest in the market just how they're, calibrating their business and their and their assets you know to make the most out of chaos because we know it's chaos um i I loved some of the points where you know talk about your thoughts out loud and and be open to the opinion of others you know as 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 one of your key pillars because you talk about communication and you repeated just how important it was to communicate across the team and to be open to sharing these things um, to debate your view, and maybe for others to pick out the the fact you've got some biases in there that you may want to pay attention to um, in terms of your decision making. We laughed about it, but sort of laughing at your failures in, in in the appropriate sense of what that word means, and having humility leading to transparency was also something um, that, that was very important for me. But I mean, ultimately, the whole sense of balance about these people that are coming through into this business, having the, the balance around the quantitative, the balance around the, the skills of trading itself, but the balance around self uh, and uh, is, is critical. So, Todd, we thank you for going deep into that. Which, and uh, we in, enjoyed the journey. And, uh, yeah, I just thank you. That's been my absolute pleasure. This has been great. Thank you guys very much. 
thank you to Todd for being such an amazing guest and uh, thank you for listening to the Alphaman podcast today. We also want to extend a thank you to our podcast sponsor, the Society of Technical Analysts. Do check out their brilliant home study course and you can see more about that at our website, alpha-mind.net. And of course, if you're keen to know more about how Alphaman can help you, please do also look up... Um, further details of our services on our website or reach out to us at info at alpha-mind.net that just leaves us to say thank you and we wish you the best of luck in the weeks ahead